You are listening to audio from Western Meadows Baptist Church. Here at WMBC, we are disciples of Jesus who make disciples through the teaching of Scripture, prayer, and living together in community. If you would like to listen to more, go to our Apple Podcasts or to our website, wmbc.church. Please do not edit, copy, or sell this material without prior permission of WMBC. Thank you for listening. All right, so we are concluding our sermon series through the book of Haggai. Um, and so, uh, so if you will, open your Bibles and go ahead and turn with me to Haggai chapter 2, and we will be in verses 20 through 23, concluding the book this morning. And so just to remind us of what we've discussed so far in this uh, short two-chapter minor prophet book. Um, so uh, Haggai's day took place after the Babylonian captivity, right? So the, the southern kingdom of Judah, um, after, after having some good kings, but mostly having a lot of bad kings, um, re- repeatedly disobeyed the Lord, repeatedly um, worshipped other gods instead of him, and so the Lord promised that he was going to destroy them. He was going to send them into captivity, and through Jeremiah, he promised that he was going to send them into captivity for 70 years, right? And eventually the day came. There was three, there was actually three deportations, but eventually on the third time that the king of Babylon came, Nebuchadnezzar, um, he destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the walls, raised the temple to the ground, and took and took the people en masse back to Babylon and scattered them across his empire. And so the people for 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 a little more than a generation, for a couple, for several decades, were in exile from their own hometown. They were living in Babylon, right? But, as we read in the book of Ezra, which gives the history and the context for um, Haggai's day, um, we read that, that Babylon was defeated and conquered by the Persians, and then the Persian king, Cyrus, the first king of the Persian Empire, he issued an edict and sent the people of Jerusalem back to their hometown, back to the, to the land of Judah. And he told them to rebuild the temple, actually gave them a command of a, a formal royal edict to build the temple. And so the people got back to their homeland and they started doing that. They rebuilt the altar. They started keeping the festivals and the feasts that God commanded them through Moses and they laid the foundation of the temple. They, were, they had seemingly learned their lesson of discipline, uh, that the Lord had taught them through the discipline of their exile, right? But then when the other peoples that were living in Judah while they were gone and the peoples of the surrounding area started to harass them and tried to keep them from rebuilding the temple, they stopped. They gave in to their adversaries. They gave in to the opposition. And for 15 years, they stopped rebuilding the temple. And so Haggai shows up on the scene 15 years later with a little message for the people saying, this people says that it is not yet time to build the house of the Lord. And he says, but you've certainly been busying yourselves with your own homes, right? And so Haggai's message that we saw in the, in the, in the first chapter, verses 1 through 11, the core of Haggai's message is found in there, where he says, build the house of the Lord, right? It, and as we've noted, it's not a matter of the, the people that, that God was against the people building their own, ho- their own homes. It was a matter of priorities. They were prioritizing their own homes to the neglect of the temple, to the neglect of the house of God. And so God was telling them that, that, that he was striking them with drought and with pestilence and, with, and, and, and with, 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 with curses from the Lord in order to get them to turn back to him so that they, so that they would walk with him once again. <clears throat> and as we saw, the, the, we concluded chapter one of Haggai. The people did the most surprising thing in the world. They obeyed. They walked in obedience to the Lord. They got to work. They started rebuilding the temple of God. And so God made the promise that he's going to be with them. And so then as we've been walking through chapter 2, we've seen that chapter 2 is divided into three oracles. The Lord gives to the people through Haggai three different oracles. And all three of these oracles are, 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 are speaking to this obedient people that have started rebuilding the temple, but they're meeting discouragement in some form or fashion, right? So the first oracle we saw was, was, uh, was a message for the entire people of Judah, right? And they, were, and they were facing the discouragement of believing that there was no way that them in this remnant state, this poor people returned back that were, that were a shadow of their former glory, there was no way that they were going to be able to build a temple that would even closely resemble the glory of Solomon's temple that had been destroyed by the king of Babylon, right? And what does God promise them? 
He says, not only will the glory be, be equal to the, 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 the temple of Solomon that was destroyed, but instead he says, the latter glory of the temple will be greater than the former. This temple is actually going to be a greater glory than the one that was destroyed before, right? And then we saw last week, he gave a second message to the priests, to the religious leaders of the people. And, they, and he was responding to a discouragement, probably that those curses, the, the, the drought that the Lord had placed upon the land after four months of walking in obedience, their circumstances hadn't changed. Things, their, their crops were still not producing fruit. It looked as though the Lord, even though they were obedient, even though they were repentant, they were following after the Lord, it looked like the Lord was still against them, like they were still under the discipline of the Lord. And the Lord reminded them of their sin, reminded them of how serious their 15 years of neglect of the temple of God were, that it had made them into a defiled people. But he gave them a promise, from this day forward, I will bless you, Right? He promised them that on, that on that day when Haggai gave the message to them, from that day forward, God would bless his people. Now today we come to the third oracle, the final message that God gives to his people, to these, these returned exiles from Haggai the prophet. And this message is given to the political leader of the people of Judah, Zerubbabel, the heir to the throne of David. And once again, we can see that this is probably meeting, answering a discouragement um, that Zerubbabel himself was probably facing, and probably the people were facing as well. But we will get to that in our own time. So let's read our text. <clears throat> let's pray to the Lord for his grace to be upon us. And let's dive into these final four verses of the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 20 through 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai. On the 24th day of the month, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are a God who remembers your people. That you are a God who is, who is faithful to the promises that you make. Just as you made a covenant with your servant Abraham and a covenant with your servant David and you have not broken those covenants. Lord, we know that the new covenant that we have in your son Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, we know that it will stand for all eternity. And we thank you, Father, that even as you keep your covenants, And even though, even as you keep your promises to us, we thank you that you are also a God who is quick to reverse your curses. It is quick to respond to, to, to even as you discipline us with, because of our sins, that you are quick to turn our curses, the curses that you have laid upon us into blessings and to reverse our circumstances and to bring us back to you. And so I pray, Father, that this morning that you would show us more clearly just how good your grace and your mercy and your love for us is. And Father, we pray that as we dive into your word, that you would give us ears, that we might hear these words that you are speaking to us. And we pray, Father, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold glorious things in your word. Oh, Father, may your words be more desirous to us than gold and even much fine gold and may they be sweeter on our tongues than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb we cannot live by bread alone but instead we are sustained by every word that comes from your mouth and so feed us this morning we pray and it's in the name of Jesus that we said Amen as with all the major oracles of the book of Haggai this one again begins with a date 
right? The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. And so, the reason it says a second time is because if you will remember back from verse 10 of Haggai chapter 2, that message came on the 24th day of the ninth month. So the message that he gave to the priests that we saw last week and the message that he is going to give to Zerubbabel here happened on the same day, which in our calendar would be December 18th. So as we noted last week, just a little bit, just a, uh, around four months after the first message that Haggai gave to his, gave to the people, right? And so the Lord is speaking to Haggai, speaking through Haggai to Zerubbabel, um, giving a second message on the same day. And I think that this is important, that this is coming on the same day, because it signals an important connection between last week's passage and this week's passage. Because the two oracles were given to the leaders of the people. Remember, the first oracle of chapter 2 was given to the, the whole people. It was given to Zerubbabel as the political leader, to the priests as the religious leaders, and to all the people of Judah. But these last two messages given on the same day, the first one's given to the priests, the religious leaders, and then the second one here is given to Zerubbabel, who's the political leader, the governor of Judah, right? And so, I think... Um, so, so I think these messages also reflect the roles of the offices, right? So the, to the priest, God emphasized the defilement of the people, and yet he concluded with the promise of his blessing. And as we will see here with his message to Zerubbabel, God speaks about the overthrowing of the nations and to Zerubbabel's own lack of the crown. So in the first oracle, in last week's oracle, their spiritual condition was addressed, and now the attention in this oracle is turned towards the people's physical and political condition. Okay, so God's declaration in verses 21 and 22, I think should remind us a little bit of verses six and seven of chapter two that we read. So let's read those verses just a little bit. Verse 21, speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. And I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down everyone by the sword of his brother, right? This should remind us of what we read two weeks ago back in verse six and seven. So just a little bit up. For thus says the Lord of hosts yet once more. In a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts, right? So the, from the oracle that we saw two weeks ago, God promised to shake all the nations so that the treasures of the nations come into God's temple. And now again, in our present text, God is speaking again of shaking the nations, right? And so I think that these these. These two texts are clearly meant to connect with each other, right? He's talking about the same event, the same shaking that is going to happen here, right? But there is, but he is using a little bit different language here, right? So verses 6 and 7 of Haggai 2, they talked about God shaking the nations so that the treasures, the gold and the silver of the nations would come into the temple and the temple would be filled with the glory of God, right? The nations would surrender up their, their, their monetary worth. They would surrender up their economic power, right? But now in these verses, he's talking about shaking the nations in what way? Destroying their military power. Destroying their power in general, right? And so, just as... Um, so just as in verses 6 and 7 promise that on that day of the Lord, when Christ returns, when God, when God uh, restores everything, once again, the wealth and the glory of the nations will be cast before the Holy One's feet. So will the strength and authority of the nations be broken with a rod of iron and made to swear fealty, swear loyalty to Jesus Christ as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so that's the big idea. That's the main message of verses 21 and 22, right? One day God is going to return. The day of the Lord is going to come. He's going to shake all nations. He's going to destroy their authority, their power, and everyone is going to bow a knee before the Lord as the one true king, as the Lord of hosts, right? That's the big message. So with this overall message in mind, let's consider a couple of particular points of interest from these verses. So first note that verse 22, in verse 22, God promises to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. So now here, kingdoms is plural, while throne is singular, right? So one singular throne of multiple kingdoms. Now how do we, 
why would God speak with this particular language, right? Because God doesn't ever say anything without meaning it, and he doesn't even use particular wording without having a reason for that particular wording, right? So the most immediate way to understand this choice of words, I think, is essentially the same thing as saying every throne of every king, right? So when he says the throne of kingdoms, I think it, it, it can be read in the most basic possible way as essentially saying every throne of every kingdom, right? So that seems to be the most surface level, the basic foundational way of understanding this passage, right? But you could also see here a subtle reminder of Darius, remember, who is the king of Persia at this time, the king of the Persian Empire, that he has a very finite time of reigning over nearly all the nations of the world. Right? Because we know that one of the titles that Darius took as the king of Persia was he took the title of king of kings because he did rule over much of the known world. The the former nation of Judah was now a province of the Persian Empire. Right? So Darius is over all the world. He has one throne that is over many kingdoms. So this could be a subtle reminder that Darius's throne may have been over many nations, but it would not last. In the end, Darius would face death, the same as the poorest beggars of his kingdom. Right? Now, let's go one step further. From the rest of scriptures, we know also that there is one singular throne that is ruling over the kingdoms of the earth that reject the Lord as their God. So during Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Luke records the following words. And the devil took him up, so Jesus took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, let's remember that Jesus says that Satan is a liar and the father of lies, right? So let's not take his words as though that they were immediately true. Many of his most effective lies are partially and even sometimes mostly true. And I may even say some of his most effective lies may be on the surface true, but he's spinning them in a deceptive way. And I think that's the case here with what he is tempting Jesus with. Because Jesus does, in fact, call Satan the ruler of this world. He calls him that three times in the book of John. And then John notes in the first of his letters that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And as we just read from Ephesians 6, and then we can also read a similar language in the book of Colossians, when Paul speaks of Satan and his demons, he calls them rulers, and authorities, and dominions, and cosmic powers. And so all of these terms are terms of authority. And so thus, the nations of the world that do not submit themselves to the authority of Christ are in reality under Satan's domain of darkness, as Paul calls it in the book of Colossians. So everyone alive, therefore, everyone, is a citizen of either the kingdom of Christ or a citizen of the kingdom of Satan. That's it. There's two thrones. And of course, many will object to that kind of statement, claiming that they would bow to neither Jesus nor Satan. And they may not even believe that Satan exists, which is becoming increasingly popular among Christians. Yet one of Satan's greatest strategies is to let us pretend to be king. Or better yet, to let us pretend to be God. After all, a slogan of modern Satanism is do what thou wilt. Now, brothers and sisters, where in the world have we seen that before? Oh yeah, you do you. Live your own truth. And all the other taglines of the day are essentially telling us the exact same satanic lie. Do whatever you want. Be your own king of your own kingdom. You are God. And that kind of self-focus is just as satanic as worshiping a pantheon of false gods which are in reality demons, as Paul says to the Corinthians. Now, 
The deception of Satan's temptation to Jesus was the implication that his authority was absolute. We know that, G- that Satan is the ruler of this world. We know that all the world lies under the power of the evil one, right? Saw those. But the deception is that Satan was implying that his authority is absolute. Yet in the book of Job, we see a glorious example that Satan required the permission of the Lord to do anything to Job, to touch one man. Satan had to have the explicit permission of the Lord. And so for now, Satan's throne is powerful, but brothers and sisters, it is limited. One day, his throne will be overthrown once and for all. And he will be cast into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night and forever and ever. Second, note in verse 22 how God promises to Zerubbabel that his victory over the kingdoms will be won. Listen to what he says. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. Now the strength of a kingdom is its military, its armaments, right? And in fact, through Moses, God warned the future kings of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy against acquiring many horses since they would begin to place their confidence in military rather than in the might of the Lord as their God and defense. So the overthrowing of chariots and horses, therefore, was the destruction of a nation's might. It was the destruction of the nation's power. But the Lord is also alluding here to two of Israel's previous victories by the hand of God. The throwing down of chariots and horses calls to mind the drowning of all of Pharaoh's army whenever he was chasing the Israelites as they were leaving Egypt in the Exodus, right? And they crossed the Red Sea, and it says that Pharaoh and his army entered into the Red Sea with all of the, the, the water surrounding them on both sides. And God kept them back away from the people with his, with, his, with his pillar of cloud. And once the people got over onto the other side, what happened? The Lord collapsed the waters and it says that every single one of Pharaoh's army, including Pharaoh himself, was consumed with the water, right? But then also there's another illusion here. When the Lord speaks to Zerubbabel here and says that the destruction of soldiers, everyone by the sword of his own brother. That's another illusion reminding Zerubbabel, hopefully, of Gideon's victory over the Midianites, right? Where Gideon takes his 300 men and surrounds the camp of the Midianites in this valley, and he begins to call out, to, to, to sound the trumpets, to scream out. And what happens? The Midianites, they wake up, and it says in the book of Judges that um, that the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. The Midianites wake up, and in a panic, they start killing themselves. They start fighting one another. And so thus, the Lord is reminding Zerubbabel here that just as he unilaterally defeated Pharaoh's army, by consuming all of the chariots and all of the horsemen with water. And just as he unilaterally defeated all of the Midianites by having them kill themselves with their own swords, thinking that they themselves were their own enemy, in the same way, God will do it again with all the nations. He is going to consume all the nations and break them down. And so, brothers and sisters, of course, this means that what we have been seeing throughout the book of Haggai that seeking God's kingdom first, that building his temple, putting that as a priority above the busying ourselves with our own houses, is eternally practical. Eternally practical. Because if every other kingdom will fall before the Lord's might, then let us side ourselves with God's kingdom now. Let us side ourselves with the one kingdom that, as the book of Hebrews says, cannot be shaken. If the shaking of the Lord one day will destroy every other kingdom, let us go with the one that is unshakable. So now, in these first three verses of the message, what we've seen is that God has given Zerubbabel a very big picture, right? That he is going to destroy all nations. He's going to overthrow all nations. But here in the final verses of Haggai, the Lord gives a very specific promise to the governor of Judah. So, 
Read this verse with me. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So the first three words there, on that day, tie this last promise explicitly to the verses that just came before, right? Of the shaking and the overthrowing of the kingdoms. But not only do they tie it there, but they also tie back to the previous oracle, right? Because if you remember what we saw last week in God promising to uh, the priest, he said three times, from this day, from this day, from this day on, I will bless you. And so now, on the same day, God is speaking not to the religious leaders, the priests, but he's speaking to the political leader, the governor of Judah, the heir to the throne of David, and he's saying, on that day, on this future day. And what's he going to do? Since we've identified the previous verses, the overthrowing and the shaking of all these kingdoms to be describing the day of the Lord, Christ's return, for which we are still waiting, then this promise to Zerubbabel might seem a little bit fishy for God to make Zerubbabel like a signet ring. But it is worth noting that I believe that a partial fulfillment of God's promise to shake the nations did occur in Zerubbabel's day. Okay? Ezra 5 and 6 record some of the opposition that the people of Judah met even as they restarted their work on the temple following the oracles of Haggai and Zechariah. And in Ezra, chapter 5, verses 6 and 17, you don't have to turn there. The governors of the neighboring provinces wrote a letter to Darius, the king of Persia, and asked him whether the people of Judah truly had the authority to rebuild the temple or not. And Darius sent a letter back to those officials, not only ordering the temple to be, to be rebuilt, but also telling the governors of the surrounding provinces that they were supposed to spare no expense in helping the people of Judah. They were supposed to give to them whatever they needed, whatever they asked, in order to make sure that the temple was rebuilt as quickly as possible. Now, Darius was, was obviously not a follower of the Lord, but he did have a reason for wanting the temple to, re, to be rebuilt. So the people could go in and worship the Lord and pray for him. Right? So Darius was a smart man. He may not have believed in the Lord as the one true and only God, but he wanted the Lord to be on his side nevertheless, right? And so there was a partial fulfillment of these verses, of the shaking of nations, of the nations bringing in their treasures, of these adversaries that were opposed to to rebuilding the temple, being forced to help rebuild the temple, being forced to give their support, to give their aid, to give their resources in order to get it built, right? And so so that was a partial fulfillment, The temple was rebuilt and the nations, the surrounding nations, were used by the king of Persia to rebuild the temple, right? But that's only a partial fulfillment. The ultimate ultimate fulfillment is still yet to come. And in a similar way, I think God's specific promise to Zerubbabel was certainly fulfilled partially at that time. But the full fulfillment is still in wait. But we're talking about all this and we haven't even really addressed what God's promise was, right? What is God's promise to Zerubbabel? The Lord declared that he would take Zerubbabel and make him like a signet ring. The first time that a signet ring appears in the Bible is during the Genesis narrative of the life of Joseph. After being sold by his brothers into slavery and spending years within an Egyptian prison, God provided Joseph with an an interpretation of Pharaoh's dream and a plan to rescue Egypt from a severe an impending famine, right? Hopefully most of you guys know this story. And thus, Pharaoh granted Joseph authority second only to himself, right? And as a symbol of that authority, here's what we read in Genesis chapter 41, verse 42. Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. Everyone who saw Pharaoh's signet ring upon Joseph's hand would understand that Joseph bore the authority of Pharaoh himself. And in fact, Judah, his brother, 
several years later when Judah is standing before Joseph and does not yet know that Joseph is his brother, actually makes the comment that looking upon Joseph is like looking upon Pharaoh himself. Another place that we see signet ring being used is in the book of of Esther. First, Haman, and then Mordecai are given King Asuherus' signet ring. And Asuherus, if you remember from that, from the first um, from our first sermon of Ezra is the son of Darius, who, um, who, who, who Haggai um, lived during his day, right? So Asuherus um, gave his signet ring to Haman first and then to Mordecai. And both of those people, Haman and Mordecai, used the ring as an official seal to make, an, to make a decree in the name of the king that went out to the entire Persian Empire, right? So what's the point? A person who bore the signet ring of the king also bore the authority of the king. They were not the king, but they had the authority to issue official decrees of the king. Looking upon one who bore the king's signet ring was like looking upon the king himself. They become the king's representative. In verses 21 and 22, and from God's repeated use of the title Lord of Hosts throughout the book of Haggai, the Lord has established himself as king. But he is not any king. He is the king of heaven's battalions, the legions of angels that answer to his commands. He is the eternal king who was and is and is to come, the one who has no beginning and has no end. He is the almighty king before whom all thrones and kingdoms will one day bend their knees in submission And now the high king of heaven promised to make Zerubbabel like his signet ring. But why? Why did the Lord promise to give Zerubbabel such an exalted position before him? What had Zerubbabel done? We get two clues. First of all, the Lord calls Zerubbabel my servant. To be a servant of the creator king is a high honor. It's the highest honor. And many heroes in the faith bore the title such as Job, Abraham, Moses, Caleb, David, Isaiah, just to name a few. And then, of course, in the, the apostles of the New Testament begin many of their epistles by calling themselves servants or we might even say slaves of Jesus Christ. And two of those were half-brothers of Jesus and were willingly calling themselves slaves of Jesus And so this designation of Zerubbabel as God's servant is powerful, as a powerful declaration. Why? Because a slave with the the king's signet ring has greater authority than any other person in the kingdom. Freed or not. A slave with with the king's signet ring has more authority than any other person in the kingdom, other than the king himself. But then second, The Lord declares, for I have chosen you. Zerubbabel certainly proved himself to be a trustworthy servant of the Lord by leading the people in repentant obedience after receiving Haggai's initial rebuke. But even Zerubbabel's obedience at the end of chapter 1 of Haggai resulted from the Lord's stirring the spirit and the spirit of all the people. And so, why is Zerubbabel receiving this promise? Because God freely chose Zerubbabel as his servant to be like his signet ring. From here, we should be really careful to note what this promise is not saying. Because since Zerubbabel was a descendant of David and the heir to the throne of Judah, many see this promise as God promising Zerubbabel that he would be king. And that didn't happen. Zerubbabel was never crowned king. And the reason for that was, as we've noted before, because Judah was no longer a kingdom. Judah was merely a province of the Persian Empire. And in a fairly gracious act from the Persian king, Zerubbabel was allowed to be governor of Judah, right? And that is a gracious act, right? Because that could either go really well or that can go really bad. Having the person who has the 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 hereditary right to be king over this people, making him into their governor, their political leader, 
right? But Darius, he was the king of the people of Judah, not Zerubbabel. And so this must have been a tremendous discouragement to Zerubbabel. Because like Zerubbabel himself, his father Shealtiel was never crowned king. And from all we know, it seems that he was both born and died in Babylon. Never did see the land of Judah. And even his grandfather, Jehoiakim, was the only king for three months before he was taken captive to Babylon. And this might be a good time to get those charts that I gave you, because we're going to talk about this. So what therefore happened to the covenant that God made to David? Didn't God promise David these exact words? And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Yes, that was God's covenant that he made with David. And now Zerubbabel, as the heir to David, is ruling over his people with no throne, with no crown, and he is no king. And his father before him was not king. And his grandfather before him reigned for three months and then spent 37 years as a prisoner of the one who is now king over this people of God. And so we ask, has the Lord forsaken David? Has the Lord forsaken his covenant that he made with David that a son would always sit upon David's throne? No. The Lord had not forsaken his promise to David. And in fact... This promise to Zerubbabel is essentially a restatement of God's commitment to that covenant. How so, we might ask. Well, there is one other reference to a signet ring that we need to consider, and this is probably the most important one. And so if you will, turn to Jeremiah chapter 22. It's just, you know that I don't like to flip around on things, but this is... This is a good one to have your Bibles open and to be looking at it yourself, right? So here in Jeremiah chapter 22, Jeremiah is going to give, uh, in verses 24 through 30, 24 through 30, Jeremiah is going to be giving a prophecy to Zerubbabel's grandfather, which as you can see on this or from these, his name was he had three names, Jehoiakim, Jeconiah, or Coniah, right? And so Jeremiah is going to call him Coniah, all right? And so Jeremiah is prophesying to, um, to Zerubbabel's grandfather, Jeconiah, or Coniah, or Jehoiakim. Try to keep track of all those, right? Okay, so Jeremiah, chapter 22, verses 24 through 30. As I live declares the Lord, which is eternally. Though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will long to return, there they shall not return. Is this man, Coniah, a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast off into a land that they do not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this down. Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So notice the language that God uses against Zerubbabel's grandfather. Even if he had been the Lord's signet ring, the representation of God himself upon earth, God would still rip him off and throw him into the Chaldeans, into the, the land of the Babylonians, to die in exile. You may notice that this is the opposite of the message that God is giving to Zerubbabel. That's important. 
The most troubling portion of this oracle, though, is the judgment that we find in verse 30, where he says, write this man down as childless. Now, we know he wasn't childless. We're reading about his grandson, Zerubbabel. But God says, write this man down as childless, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. That's a really significant curse. God is cutting off this branch of David. He's severing Coniah or Jeconiah. He's severing his line of descent and saying, you will never have another king. You will not. None of your sons will secede you onto the throne of David. But does this mean that God was done with the promise of David once and for all? No, no, no. Look at Jeremiah chapter 23. This is the reason I wanted you to be here. Verses 5 and 6, Jeremiah 23. So God's not done with his promise to to David because he says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and, the, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, if you look at this, once Jeconiah or Coniah, once he was taken captive, his son Shealtiel did not ascend him on the throne because he was only 18 years old. But instead, follow the arrow up, his uncle, Mataniah, became king. And once he became king, he took on the name himself, Zedekiah. Which means, the Lord is our righteousness. Okay. Well, God just said that a branch from David was going to be called, the Lord is our righteousness. That he was going to save Judah, that he was going to save Israel, that he was going to be this promised king, right? Well, is that what happened with Zedekiah? Was he that promised branch of David that would rescue and save? After reigning for 11 years in Jerusalem, Zedekiah rebelled against Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, raised it to the ground, destroyed the temple destroyed its walls. And when Zedekiah and his sons tried to escape, they were captured and Nebuchadnezzar had Zedekiah's sons slaughtered before his eyes before they were gouged out and he was taken back as captive to Babylon. Well, that's a problem. We have a guy that has sons that God says that his sons are no longer going to be an inheritance to the throne of David. And now we have this guy that seemed like he was going to be the fulfillment of the promise that God made through Jeremiah. The Lord is our righteousness. And then when he's deposed as king, his sons are slaughtered before his eyes and his eyes are gouged out. Well, he's not going to be producing any more offspring, right? So what's the deal? What is What in the world is going on here? Interestingly, just as Zedekiah seems to do the opposite of what you might expect from this prophecy in Jeremiah, Coniah also faced a reversal of circumstances. We find at the end of Second Kings that although he did indeed die in exile, after 37 years in a Babylonian prison, he was freed by the king and he ate every day at the king's table. And what's interesting is we even now have archaeological evidence of the receipts that Jeconiah was given as his daily allowance. So the Lord's oracle to Zerubbabel back in Haggai, you can turn back there now if you'd like. His oracle to Zerubbabel as Coniah or Jeconiah's grandson is the official reversal of God's former curse upon Coniah's lineage. But some might argue Would the undoing of God's curse upon Coniah mean that the Lord acted against his own word? 
to use Paul's language, by no means. We should be infinitely thankful that God is in the business of reversing his curses. Why? Because in fact, God's covenant with David was just one piece of God's grand plan to reverse the great curse of sin that has been upon us since the fall. Beginning with our rebellion, with the rebellion of our ancestors, Adam and Eve, each preceding generation follows after their examples as we do today. Choosing to reject God rather than worshiping and obeying and enjoying him forever. And yet, in the midst of cursing Adam and Eve for their treason against the infinite king, God promised that the offspring, the descendant of woman, would one day defeat sin for good. And this offspring was further promised to descend from Abraham, to be of the lineage of Abraham. And through this offspring of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then the promise gets even a little bit more specific in the promise that we read about David, right? This Davidic covenant. Because God promised to establish the throne of David's offspring forever. Now, all of these promises, the offspring of woman, the offspring of Abraham, and the offspring of David, they find their fulfillment, they find their culmination in the opening verse of Matthew's gospel. Matthew opens up his gospel by the, with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the offspring of woman who on the cross defeated the curse of sin once for all by taking our penalty upon himself and granting us his righteousness instead. And Jesus is the offspring of Abraham, who alone is the hope and the blessing of all nations. And Jesus is the offspring of David, who by his death conquered sin and death and now reigns forevermore as the king of all kings. And in verses 12 through thir- and 13 of Matthew chapter 1, we see that both Zerubbabel and Jeconiah, or Coniah, are a part of Jesus' ancestry. The reversal of God's curse against Jeconiah through his grandson Zerubbabel, making Zerubbabel like a signet ring before him, is only a piece of the reversing of the curse of sin that God was doing. God's promise to make Zerubbabel like a signet ring is only a foretaste of Zerubbabel's offspring, Jesus, who is the exact imprint of God's nature. And although Zerubbabel never sat on the throne of Judah, from his lineage has come the one who is the ruler of the kings on earth. The one who will overthrow the throne of kingdoms and break the nations with a rod of iron. And so let us, brothers and sisters, humbly and joyfully serve Christ, who is the King Eternal. If you will, Turn with me to Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. Let's read these words. Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tataniah, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bezoni, and their associates did with all diligence what the king, what Darius the king ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the the dedication of this house with joy. Four years. Four years after Haggai's original rebuke. And 70 years, almost to the dot, after the temple's destruction, the new temple was finished and dedicated, which was celebrated by the people with great joy. And as they continued their steadfastly in their obedience to the Lord, prioritizing the rebuilding of his house, the Lord prospered his 
people just as he promised. Likewise, brothers and sisters, we have been called by the Lord not to build a temple made with human hands, but instead to proclaim the gospel of his kingdom. We are commanded to go as Christ's servants until disciples have been made of all the nations, until the good news of the king's arrival and the hope of his return have reached the ears of all peoples of the earth. Now such a project is far too great for us alone, but he is with us even until the end of the age. His work will be accomplished. His house will be built. His kingdom will come in all of its glory. And in the meantime, we are called simply to be obedient and to be expectant. Obedient to seek his kingdom first above all else and expectant that what we know now by faith shall soon become sight as we behold the glory of our God in the face of Jesus Christ, our King, crying out for all eternity, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power, wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Let's pray. Oh, Father, your kingdom come. give thanks to you that Christ our King has come and he has come as a suffering servant to die on behalf of your people and we pray O oh Lord that Christ will come again as the reigning King as the triumphant and the glorious one the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to make all things right Lord, we pray for that day when our faith will become sight and we will behold your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And Father, as we wait for that day, let us be rooted and grounded in the good news of your gospel that we stand justified before you by no righteousness except for Jesus Christ and him alone. And let us go forth into the world proclaiming that good news. Lord, let us seek your kingdom above all else. Let us build your house instead of busying ourselves with our own little kingdoms. Father, we pray that you would fulfill the great commission that you have given to us using us. We know, O oh Lord, that we cannot accomplish it all. So we just ask you to be, to give us the strength by your spirit to be obedient with what you have called us to do. To be obedient with the part that you have called us to play in the bringing of your kingdom. O oh Lord, we pray that one day, and day by day, that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And use us, O oh Lord, as a small part of making that happen. We love you, O oh Lord. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. We said, Amen.